I want to talk today about something that I've alluded to in other teachings and other times that uh, I think will be really helpful and explain a lot of stuff for people. And that is the topic of egregore. Now, that may be a new term for a lot of people, maybe a new term for most of you, maybe not. But the term egregore comes from the Greek, and it means uh, it's basically the term that's used for a watcher. So before we jump into what egregores are, let me give you some background ideas. We've been talking about consciousness in these Sunday Morning Live videos, been talking about how I believe anyway that we live in a conscious universe, that consciousness is the foundation of everything. I do affirm what John says in uh, his gospel in our Bibles, John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And all things were made by the word or the logos or consciousness. And so my presupposition to begin today is that everything that we see and everything that happens is created by consciousness. Every invention, everything that we engage with from the chair that I'm sitting on to the computer that I'm looking at all began with an idea. It all began with a thought. So thought precedes creation and consciousness and energy is the root and foundation, origin and source of all things. And I don't think we have any idea what the limits of consciousness is. I don't think we have any idea what can be created or what can be done with consciousness or because of consciousness. And another topic that I've talked about a lot in various different different videos is the idea of groupthink. Groupthink. Um, it's the idea that or the concept that people gather around ideas, gather around thoughts, and create what I would call these group thought forms. And once these group thought forms have been created, they kind of float around and our consciousness, our awareness, our conscious mind picks those things up. And if we're part of a group or a group think, we copy those ideas. Now, this is very evident to see if you pick any controversial subject, uh, let's uh, specifically in politics. Politics is run and ruled in America, at least, because we do live in a democracy republic. But you know what I'm saying? Because it's supposed to be government of the people, by the people, for the people, right? Then what happens is you have these group thought forms or memes. So a meme is not technically something that you just see on social media that's, you know, got a picture and, and something funny with it. A meme literally means something that's a copy of something else. And so when you jump into various different arenas or controversial subjects, what happens is groupthink becomes very, very evident to you because usually people that disagree with you, but also people that agree with you, I'm just trying to illustrate the point, but you'll see people that disagree with you will come out with all these memes. In other words, they'll come out with the same trope. They'll all be saying the same thing. And it's kind of comical when you're not invested in any group thought form and you encounter group thought forms. It's interesting how people that are captivated by those things will repeat the same information or repeat the same idea. And you almost get this sense in talking to them or engaging with them or dialoguing with them that they think it's extremely profound and settles the topic. 
And usually these memes and these thoughts are not very well thought out. They don't have to be thought out by the individual because the individual is participating in a level of groupthink. So if you can think about thought forms as sort of these floating masses of consciousness or ideas or pendulums or waves, we can get caught up in these pendulums. We can get caught up in these waves. We can get caught up in these group thought forms. And then you have groups of people that are arguing and memeing each other and divided and or together, things like that. So this isn't good or bad in that sense. It just is. It's just the reality of what we deal with. So what happens, though, is that we end up sometimes being taken captive by these thought forms and serving these thought forms. So one of the things that I did as a pastor, first thing when you're starting a church, beginning a, a new work, uh, the first thing they tell you to do is to come up with a vision statement. Now, this is true in corporations as well. Workplaces have vision statements. And vision statements, uh, what a vision statement is, is it's simply an idea. It's an idea of what what you're doing, why you exist, and technically, the vision statement is why you exist, what your uh, goal is to become, and a mission statement is what you're doing and how you're going to do that. So we had to come up with a vision statement, mission statement, core values, things like that. And then you uh, invest these ideas into people. Jesus said, if two or more of you shall agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. If If we take out the religious language there and just look at the principle and the concept anytime two people agree they're agreeing on thoughts they're agreeing on ideas and that's the beginning of a group thought form and if we think about the father not as you know yahweh or somebody sitting up in the sky on a throne somewhere but we think about his consciousness or source then we get this idea that two of us if we agree two or more agree come into alignment come into synchronicity or harmony with an idea or a belief then because you're tapping into source, because you are part of source, because you're connected to this eternal consciousness, this logos that brought all things into existence, then source can perform those things or the idea itself uh, can come to pass. So agreement on ideas is the beginning of a thought form. Now, the more people you get to agree on certain ideas or to, I'm sorry, to agree on that idea, then the more consciousness and the more energy is being generated to accomplish the idea, the vision, the mission, whatever it is that you're wanting to accomplish. And so we see these thought forms on almost every level. It can just be two people that are agreeing on something and trying to accomplish something, but there are group thought forms that build and form in our families, our family values, what we're taught is right and wrong, what we're taught to be rules, acceptable, unacceptable behavior, stuff like that, uh, becomes a group thought form that holds families uh, together or can hold certain family members in bondage. So if you study, in studying one of the things I've been devoting a lot of time to lately has been studying a toxic family systems, childhood trauma, stuff like that. So if we grew up with a abusive situation, if there was a narcissistic person in the family who was perpetrating uh, too much control or too much abuse in the family, then these thought forms, these family thought forms <clears throat> that perpetrate abuse begin to be internalized by the people 
in the family, and the family begins to be controlled by these things. I already mentioned how thought forms operate in certain organizations or <clears throat> perhaps in your profession. We all agree on certain principles. We all agree on um, <clears throat> how work should be done, what are the best practices, those kinds of things. And so we end up serving ideas in our family. We end up serving ideas in corporations. Culturally, there can be whole cultural thought forms, and these are really, really powerful. So <clears throat> I know in evaluating and looking at my own culture, there are certain thought forms uh, from <clears throat> not just my family, but from people like me, people that grew up in um, rural white America tend to think uh, the same way on a lot of different issues. And when more and more people agree upon these thought forms, they become sort of unwritten laws. And the problem becomes that if we want to access our individuality, if we want to self-actualize, then what we end up doing is we end up having to conform to these group thought forms. And if we don't conform to these group thought forms, uh, if we challenge these group platforms, if we come against these group platforms, then depending on the level and degree to which people in the group are serving the thought form or are believing that that thought form is a self-evident truth or an absolute moral fact or law or whatever the case may be <clears throat> through the power of agreement, then you will find yourself oftentimes alienated or excommunicated from the group. It's not because there's anything wrong with you. It's not because there's anything wrong with your thinking. It's simply because you're not going along with the group thought form. Now, this is important to recognize because what happens then is that we're not really living our own lives. We're not really living our own values. We're not really thinking for ourselves. All we're doing <clears throat> is being mastered and controlled by various different levels of group thought form. And then we join the group, we join the tribe, or we're born into the group, we're born into the tribe. And the level to which we agree with the thought forms usually determines the level of protection that we get from the group, the level of affirmation that we get from the group. And we all have social and emotional needs. And so for a lot of people, and this is what I would call the unawakened state, to be unawake is to be getting all of your social and emotional needs met from a group, not necessarily coming from a genuine place of love, not necessarily coming from a genuine place of honor where people honor you as a person and value you for who you are. They honor you and value you and your needs get met and you get protected by the group because you're all serving the same thought form. And so that's how groupthink can operate on various different levels. I hope that's making sense to people. <clears throat> um, now, let's take it one step further, and this is where we begin to get into the concept of an egregore. So far, what I've been talking about are just unwritten rules, laws, principles, ideas, or really social agreements that we enter into and participate in, oftentimes to get our social and emotional needs met uh, in order to feel secure, things like that. These are just ideas, principles, concepts, rules, laws, uh, mores, things like that. But now what happens if a group, their group thought form, goes a little bit beyond just an idea or a principle or a concept and begins to create, a group begins to create the idea of 
let me see how do I want to say this. The, the thought form itself is a being or an entity or a person. So here's where I'm talking about religion, or I'm talking about gods in general, gods in general. So if we go, you know, pre-monotheism, if we dig around in, in <clears throat> history and anthropology and archaeology prior to the Abrahamic religions, then this was very, very common. Groups did not have just ideas and principles that held them together. They had beings or gods that held them together. So every group had its own gods. So the Romans had their gods. The Greeks had their gods. Um, and then within the various different cities, there were city gods. Uh, even within families, there would be family gods. This still goes on in places, for example, like India and I suppose maybe Tibet today, where you have family gods or family idols, we would call them as Christians, that you serve. Now, this this was even more powerful in holding groups together, and I'll show you why in a minute. Because if it's true that we can create energy and we can uh, everything that is comes out of consciousness, comes out of the Logos, if we live in a conscious and energetic universe, then when you begin to... form the idea of a living being or entity or God that exists in the unseen world, that exists in what some people call the astral realm, or exists strictly on the level of thought. It's not physical or tangible. Well, think about this then. Then is it not possible to actually create that entity then? So now it's it's not an idea, it's a being. It's not just the idea of a being, it's a being itself. Now, this is something that's been recognized in the East for probably millennia. And if you care to do it, you can uh, look up the Tibetan concept of a tulpa. I think I'm saying that right. Tulpa, T-U-L-P-A. There was a movie uh, that I saw recently. I think it's on uh, Hulu. It's called The Empty Man. Uh that introduces and works with this whole idea of a tulpa. I don't want to give away too much. I don't want to do any spoilers on that. <clears throat> uh, so the idea of a tulpa in Tibetan Buddhism was that you could create really this is kind of boiling it down and dumbing it down a little bit. Um, so I don't want to offend anybody that's practicing this, but, uh, really the sort of an imaginary friend. And there are steps. There are things that people, particularly in, um, various different streams and traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, where your object and your goal is to create your personal tulpa. And so what you do is you give it a form in your imagination. You think about this being, this entity. Maybe you think about it in anthropomorphic terms, the idea of an imaginary friend. You give it a form and a shape in your mind. You give it a personality. You give it certain characteristics. And you concentrate and focus on this. And you invest it with emotions. And you communicate with it in an ongoing basis. And what they would say is that eventually your personal uh, tulpa, your personal imaginary friend, will eventually spin off of your consciousness and become a living entity or a living being that you actually give it life. 
Now, I think if I'm using the term correctly in certain magical traditions, they talk about servitors. It's the same kind of thing. So people can create a servitor uh, to protect them. So what they're doing is creating an entity and a being, giving it shape and form, investing it with personality and ideas that its job is to protect you. And then this entity sort of spins off and becomes a living thing, becomes its own independent consciousness. Now it's no longer uh, just you thinking the thought of this person or this being. This being becomes an independent consciousness. It becomes an entity, just like those thought forms are floating around in the atmosphere, so to speak, or in our consciousness at the level of consciousness. And we pick up on those thought forms and we start serving them and adopting them, then it's also possible. And one of the teachings in Tibetan Buddhism is that you can create these things, but if you're not careful, they will lord over you. You will begin to serve them. So instead of you being their God, their creator, their source, you become enslaved to them. Now, here's the thing, like everything that's living, these imaginary friends, these beings need to eat. And so what do they eat on? Well, they consume um, <clears throat> what in the East might be called prana or energy or chi, uh, what we might call spirit in the West. They begin to feed on and consume. They need energy to sustain their existence. They need energy. And that energy comes in the form of thoughts, comes in the form of emotion, comes in the form of devotion, comes in the form of worship. So again, going back to ancient time periods, uh, sacrifice was part of the, the thing. So if you think about even just sacrificing an animal, even back then, I'm sure there was a level of emotion to it. Uh, there's blood, there's shock. So there's all this energy being generated. And then there was the belief that blood contained Life energy in and of itself, the Bible says, you know, uh, <clears throat> the life is in the blood. And so when you would offer a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to an entity, it would absorb this energy. And by absorbing this energy, then it would become stronger in a couple of different ways. It would be able to sustain its independent essence, its independent consciousness. And it would strengthen the link, the mental link, the mind meld, if you will, the mind link between <clears throat> that entity and the person or people doing the sacrifices. And so really, as I understand the history of this, a woman by the name of Helen Blavatsky, uh, who's responsible for a 20th century philosophy called theosophy took this idea of tulpas and called them egregores egregores so you might call them gods so we have group egregores and the more the group is devoted to these egregores the more the group serves these egregores the more this group feeds these egregores with their emotions with their devotion with their commitment with their worship with their sacrifice then the stronger these egregores and entities become and the stronger the link is between your thought, your mind, your thinking, and that egregore. So you can see how this would be helpful in groups because now you're not just serving uh, 
agreements, social agreements and concepts and thought forms that are out there that are taking you captive, preventing you from doing your own thinking and expressing yourself in your own way. Now you have an actual entity that's that's watching over the group that the group is feeding and that the group is essentially becoming obedient to. Now you're not just obedient to an idea. You're obedient to an actual astral entity that is out there that is linked up energetically, emotionally, and consciously with your own individual thoughts and feelings. Now, this helps me make so much sense out of the fact, let's translate this into Christianity. This helps me make so much sense out of the fact that there are, what, some 30,000 denominations out there just in the Christian religion alone, 30,000 groups that have potentially 30,000 different variations of who Jesus is. I want to bring this out, too, because people love to say, well, and I, I was big on this, you know, Christianity is not about a religion. It's about a relationship. I want you to watch how powerful but how dangerous this thought is. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. So on this side, then we have group thought forms. We have agreements. This could be uh let's take it into the political realm. Republican agreements, Democrat agreements, conservative agreements, liberal agreements, whatever the case may be. Family agreements, right? So these become principles and laws and rules that we serve. That would fit the context of religion. In our religion, we don't eat meat. Or in our religion, we don't eat pork and bacon. Or in our religion, we don't practice uh, any kind of sex before marriage. Um, <clears throat> these are just the rules, whatever. So we thought we were setting people free. Watch this. We thought we were setting people free by saying, no, it's not about religion. It's about relationship and relationship has to do with entities. Relationship has to do with egregores. Now, in the same way from the ancient world, that having a corporate egregore that would be fed by devotion, obedience, emotion, thought, concentration, focus, group rituals, uh, sacrifice, the egregore or the entity has a stronger ability to control that person than just the principles and the group agreements. It's as though the entity enforces. This is important. Part of the entity's job <clears throat> is to enforce the group agreements. So when we would tell people it's not about religion, it's about relationship, what we were doing, we thought we were liberating them from rules and laws, but what we were actually doing was strengthening the connection to the egregore. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting. When we say it's not about religion, it's about relationship, we really didn't mean a personal relationship, although that's what we said. We meant personal, that you would have personal contact contact and link with this entity that we believe to be deity or whatever the case may be. But that relationship had a group think to it. So, in other words, Jesus would do this, but Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus acts this way, but Jesus doesn't act this way. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't treat everybody differently. So now all we've done is we've shifted from a group think of rules and regulations and agreements into an egregorian group think, where now we're linked mentally to an enforcer of the group rules and the group thoughts, forms and things like that, an entity that actually has the power that is given to it by the group. 
So in other words, what I'm saying is, is that when you step back and look just at present day Christianity, you're going to find out that Jesus is very, very different based on the group because you have potentially 30,000 different egregores out there that think that they're Jesus. Now get this. They're not calling themselves Jesus. We, we the group invested the idea that that being is Lord. We invested the idea that that being is savior. We invested the idea, the energy, the emotion that that entity is healer, whatever, deliverer, savior, all that stuff. And so that becomes part of the personality of that tulpa. It becomes part of the personality and essence and, and <clears throat> way that that being and that entity functions. So it actually believes itself to be that. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> is this, uh, let me, let me see if this is making sense. Let me just, uh, yeah, I'm getting a, a few comments off this. So let me, let me give you some practical examples of this. Uh, because I was looking for truth, I've engaged in relationships, worship services with various different Christian groups that are out there. So Catholicism, for example, has its own version of Jesus. Uh, and I'm not as familiar with the Catholic Jesus, but I'm sure those of you that are Catholic can relate to this. Not only is there a Catholic Jesus, there's a Catholic Mary, there are Catholic saints, there are Catholic angels and archangels, and so on. But let's get down, and then there's a Protestant Jesus. So the Catholic Jesus governs its group through the Pope and the bishops and the councils and the church itself. The Protestant Jesus now is married to the scriptures, the scriptures alone, because in the Protestant Reformation, they had to come up with a source of authority that was not the church itself and not the Pope. So instead of having the papacy being the governing body, the rule and authority of faith and conduct that this Catholic Jesus is operating and executing, bringing heaven to earth on, they had to come up with a new Authority, so they came up with this term called sola scriptura, or the scriptures alone. We don't follow the traditions. We don't follow the church. We don't follow the Pope. <clears throat> we follow the Bible. So the Protestant Jesus is beholden to the scriptures, right? Let's bring it home a little bit more. I was very involved in various different um, charismatic groups. <clears throat> and I'll give you uh, some good examples here. Um, some of you would know who David Wilkerson is. David Wilkerson, um, from the cross and the switchblade, stuff like that. If you don't know <clears throat> that name means nothing to you. It's, it's not that important, but I remember reading a book called the vision in like 1989. I think it was written in the seventies, but, uh, in the book, the vision Wilkerson claims to have seen Jesus in a vision that Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus spoke to him, and Jesus told him various different things. And the Jesus of David Wilkerson was very angry at the progress and prosperity of the American people and the American nation, 
the Jesus of David Wilkerson was very angry at things like abortion and, you know, all these various evils that this Jesus watched, this Jesus was programmed in the beginning to believe and think this way. But regardless, David Wilkerson is having an encounter with this being in this entity that's saying he's pissed off and he's coming to judge America specifically for its prosperity. So uh, I think I remember <clears throat> reading in there or hearing from people connected to that group that uh, Jesus, uh, the, the parable, there's a parable in the Bible about the rich man <clears throat> and Lazarus and the rich man fared sumptuously and Lazarus laid his gate, you know, hungry and full of sores. And in the parable, the rich man is feeding his dogs better than taking care of the beggar. And so by not caring enough about world hunger, which those of you will remember that are old enough to remember was the big issue in the late seventies, early eighties. And America was not using their prosperity to feed people in these impoverished nations and impoverished countries. Then as a nation, we were like the rich man and those Poorer nations were like Lazarus, and so we were going to have judgment coming because of our prosperity. So around that same time in the 70s and the 80s, there was a, a new group coming out of the charismatic movement that was called the Word of Faith or the Prosperity Preachers. So for this Jesus Egregore that David Wilkerson was connected to, um, the great evil, the great deception there's a deception coming. There's a false Jesus and a false Christ coming. And that is <clears throat> the word of faith Jesus, the prosperity Jesus. So if you're old enough to remember, again, a guy named Oral Roberts, founder of Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He has a vision. He sees a 30-foot Jesus or something in this vision. And this Jesus tells him that he wants him to raise money and build a hospital. Or this Jesus is going to come and kill him. And take him home. And then Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagan, various other ones began to invest in a different sort of Jesus. This Jesus was not angry at prosperity. This Jesus wanted everybody to prosper. This Jesus wanted to promote prosperity. This Jesus, uh, in, in David Wilkerson's version of Jesus and another book of his that I read, uh, you know, suffering. There's a, there's a premium paid to suffering. So if you were sick or you were ill, you were to accept that as your cross that you were to bear, your cross that you were to carry, you were to yield and surrender to the will of God. So the Jesus of David Wilkerson would make you sick, which makes sense because he's pissed off and he's bringing judgment. <clears throat> the Jesus of the Word of Faith camp knew nothing like that. The Jesus of the Word of Faith camp just, you know, isn't angry satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. Uh, it's good all the time, full of goodness. So he wants you wealthy. He wants you prosperous. He wants you successful. He wants you healthy. So now you have Jesus doing completely different things. Another movement springs up in the 80s called the Vineyard Movement, uh, founded by a man named John Wimber. The Jesus of the Vineyard Movement is... Again, he's more wishy-washy than the Jesus of the Word of Faith camp. This Jesus will heal, certainly, uh, and will prosper you, 
but sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. Some people he does it for, other people he doesn't do it for. But this Jesus was the lover of your soul. This Jesus, his primary thing was to become very intimate with you. And this Jesus loved worship music, man. So uh, this Jesus would show up when, when the worship songs were sung. And these weren't worship songs like the old hymns, like the Battle Hymn Republic or A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, this Jesus was more personal. And so these were love songs. So there's a romance now to this Jesus. It's kind of disgusting when you think about it. But this Jesus is romantic. This Jesus, in fact, you're the bride of Christ. This Jesus is your husband, this Jesus. And this Jesus' primary concern was to heal your emotional wounds. I don't know that Dave Wilkinson's Jesus gave a damn about anybody's emotional wounds. In the word of faith, your emotions were the enemy. Like this Jesus say, don't don't trust your emotions. Don't think about your emotions. Don't think about your childhood hurts. In fact, to go back to childhood hurts is a bad idea because you're a new creation. Forgetting those things that are behind you, press on towards those things that are ahead of you. So the Jesus of the Word of Faith movement really didn't care too much about your emotional stuff. In fact, that was part of the soul. You need to stay away from all that. The Jesus of the Vineyard movement was the exact opposite of that. The Jesus of the Vineyard movement was there to heal your orphan wounds and to heal your childhood wounds and to introduce you to Abba and to introduce you to Father and all this stuff. I think you get the point. So you got the Protestant Jesus, the Baptist Jesus, that doesn't do anything anymore because he's beholden just to the book and they believe in cessationism and all that stuff. You got this charismatic Jesus that comes more out of the Pentecostal holiness group, which is uh, a more pissed off version, a more demanding, a stricter taskmaster, if you will, than the Jesus of the Protestant movement, certainly the more so than the Jesus of the Catholic movement. The Jesus of the Catholic movement, you go do anything you want from Sunday to Friday. And these are caricatures. These are straw men. So, you know, bear with me. It's, it's just it's a video. But you could go do whatever you want, you know, and then you just go confess your sins to the priest on Saturday and you you eat him in the bread and drink him in the cup. Sunday morning, you're good. Um, you get absolution and all that stuff. The Jesus of the Pentecostal holiness movement was a lot stricter. You know, the Jesus of the Pentecostal movement, Pentecostal holiness movement was really worried about women wearing makeup and, and uh, men having long hair and really, really, really lathered up about sexuality uh this jesus it's almost like you know he didn't believe in sex because it might lead to dancing uh, <laughs> the jesus of the vineyard movement was much more forgiving and loving and uh that kind of stuff not that they endorsed uh you know Im- immorality i'm not you know basic christian or the Christian morals were still kind of in place there, but this one's a lot freer. So in the Pentecostal holiness movement, that Jesus, uh, if you didn't dress up when you came to church, that Jesus might speak through a prophet and rebuke you. If you're a woman wearing makeup or you're showing your kneecaps because your skirt is too short <laughs> or you're showing an elbow, then that Jesus uh, might rebuke you through a prophet. The prophet would pick up on a thought stream and a thought and feel a presence, feel an energy, feel an anointing and look at a woman and call her out and tell her that she's a Jezebel and tell her that she needs to uh, uh, repent, come down to the front, that kind of stuff, uh, because holiness is what mattered 
to that Jesus. Um, whereas in the vineyard movement, Wimber often, that's back when Bermuda shorts, if you know what Bermuda shorts are, that's back when, uh, Bermuda shorts were popular. And, you know, Wimber would show up maybe in, uh, Bermuda shorts and, uh, uh, or a Hawaiian shirt and, uh, flip flops. And so there was just sort of this, you know, countercultural dress. Um, you get it. Um, and I could go on and on with this. The Jesus of the prosperity movement. Uh, anyway, you get what I'm saying. Now, here's what I want you to realize. Every single one of these are corporate tulpas. They're corporate egregores. So if you linked up and joined with that group, if you pledged, pledged allegiance, uh, if you came down and said the prayer, I want Jesus to come into my heart. Literally, what, what, what what's happening here? is that the whole idea of inviting Jesus into your life or receiving the spirit, you're receiving the, you are pledging and creating a mental and emotional link to that version of Jesus that that particular group served. Now, this becomes a supernatural entity quite capable of supernatural things. This has its own anointing. This has its own energy. This has its own stream of consciousness. And so when you say, Jesus, come into my heart, you weren't inviting Jesus from 2,000 years ago um, or the Christ into your heart. <clears throat> you were inviting their personal Jesus into your heart, thus creating a link between your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, and the mind, thoughts, and emotions, and form of the Jesus of that group, of that group, Jesus. Now watch. <clears throat> Remember, these things have to feed. They have to feed off of emotion. They have to feed off of devotion. Uh, <clears throat> the stronger the emotion, the stronger the devotion, the more powerful the entity becomes, which is why in groups like the Vineyard Movement or the Word of Faith Movement, these more charismatic groups, it's why you see more supernatural things, because they're feeding the Egregore. People say, oh, that Pentecostalism, is, it's all just emotionalism. It wasn't all just emotionalism, but there was emotionalism involved. Emotion was definitely cultivated towards this thing. So we would come together on Sunday mornings and we would worship. How great is our God? Jesus is on the throne. Hallelujah. Come, Lord Jesus. Do all this stuff. The more emotion. Now watch. You got a group of people. Focused on an entity, offering their worship. We were taught to offer it from our hearts. If you offer it from your heart, what are you doing? You're expressing emotion. You're coming into agreement. You're focusing. You're thinking. If, if you look at, you, you can Google this, and you can look at the steps from Tibetan Buddhism on how to create your personal tulpa. What was necessary to create the tulpa for you just personally in order for it to spin off and become its own entity the steps there are almost identical, or the principles are there, in most worship services. So what happens is we're coming together and we're offering our worship as a sacrifice. No longer blood sacrifice, but we're still offering our energy. We're offering our thought. We're offering our devotion. And the more we offer our thought and our devotion to this entity, the stronger it becomes, the stronger the link between it and us becomes, until it becomes an essence 
that's over the group. So outsiders come into the group and suddenly they're convicted of their sins. In other words, if you went into the Pentecostal holiness group and you were a guy with long hair, or you were a woman showing your kneecap, you would come in and you would feel convicted of your sins. You would feel the guilt and the shame over who you were because that is a very important emotional piece. Very important to elicit that energy so that this entity can feed. So there's a feedback mechanism that's created. So you're feeding this idea that of body shaming. And this Jesus entity in the Pentecostal holiness movement is learning that itself as Lord, as creator, as savior, and its job is to save you. But there's all this body shaming and sex shaming that's being invested into the personality of this entity. So that's going up, if you will. That's the energy going up. But remember, now it's fed on that energy. So when people come in, that energy then goes back down. So that entity that believes itself to be Jesus, that entity that believes itself to be saving you is full of, also believes that its job and right and purpose is to body shame you. So now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is showing you things. The Holy Spirit is convicting you of various different things. The Jesus of the Word of Faith movement, very, very different than that. The Jesus of the Word of Faith movement wants to prosper you, uh, doesn't want you to feel guilty, wants you to forget about your past. So when you come into that context, now there's a presence, now there's an anointing, now something's coming alive inside of you because this Jesus believes that you're supposed to prosper, that you're supposed to be well, and all this various different stuff. And would have various different degrees based on thought, mental thought, mental energy, and consciousness would have the degree to respond to you in various degrees of healing or prosperity or answer prayer or stuff like that. It's, it's, it's no different than the tulpa that's out there to protect you and causing things to happen that you can't see and come into your life. In the same way, this group entity is causing prayers to be answered, words to be given, and communication because there's a link to that same thing you walk into a vineyard movement <clears throat> you're suddenly going to be thinking about your hurts traumas that you'd forgotten about maybe as a child while you're worshiping these traumas are going to come up to the surface and you may get a very varying degrees of well-being and healing and help from that and strength from that like i said these things aren't good or evil in and of themselves they just are but if we're not awake then we don't realize what we're actually participating with Now you have a group of people in the mystical Christian movement that are going up into heaven. They're having experiences that are seeing Jesus. And Jesus is telling them various different things. And they'll engage with me on Facebook posts or whatever. And it they, they won't engage with the thought. This is why the religion versus relationship thing is so uh, much more controlling. Because you can logically explain something to people. You can show them almost uh, where any objective person could see the value to an argument and they could see the logical fallacies and stuff in the other person's argument. And they will just tell you, they will just tell you, well, I know because I'm in heaven. 
I know because Jesus appeared to me. I know because Jesus told me. I know because I've been there. Well, all you did, what David Wilkerson would have told you the same thing. But David Wilkerson's Jesus that he saw in a vision is telling you, mystical person, something completely different than what he told David Wilkerson or what he told Laura Roberts or what he told Kenneth Hay or what he told John Wimber. It's, it's just it's the same thing, just replicating itself over and over and over again. And this is why I am trying to become more and more aware in my own personal journey as I share with people and offer and share these ideas with people that we do not have the right to say that our subjective experiences, our personal experiences, our subjective impressions, words, anointings, thoughts, are the way it is. Like we don't have the right to go and perpetrate our version of Jesus, our version of reality, on other people's version of Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, on other people, period. We, we don't have the right to take our subjective experiences. So great, I'm glad you've had visions. I'm glad you've had visitations. I'm glad you've connected with various different entities or whatever, good for you. If it's working for you, let it work for you because again, it's not good or evil. However, your subjective experience does not influence me. My, I'm influenced by my own subjective experiences. Um, and it's very possible, probable, in fact, that a lot of my subjective experiences have been through these thought currents and thought streams of various different entities and egregores that have been created and whatever the case may be there. Now, last part of this that I want to talk about is now the last part of what I want to talk about with this is what happens when you've participated in those groups? You've created those links, those mental links, and you run contrary to that group. Now you're dealing with something totally different. If you run contrary to a group, if growing up in conservative rural America, there's certain things that are just valued just because they are. And if I run contrary to those things, then the group wants to, you know, punish me for that or gets really angry and because they're, they're being controlled by those thought forms they're being controlled by those philosophies. But when an egregore, when an entity is involved and that entity believes that it's Lord, that entity believes that it has authority and dominion. And you've said, you're my Lord. I give you Lordship over my life. I get basically what I'm saying to that entity. You have the right to come into my mind. You have the right to influence my emotions. You have a right to have an energetic link with me. You have a right to influence my energies. So now when I leave the group, it's not the same as the group's just upset because I disagree with them. The group comes under the influence of that egregore and entity, as do I. So to try to leave and get out of something like that is real, real, watch this, spiritual warfare. It is real spiritual warfare because you're not feeding the entity anymore. You're not giving it its attention, its time, its devotion. So two things happen. You begin to feel guilty and condemned. Maybe there are even some bad experiences that happen in your life. Everybody says, see, you left the faith and look, these bad things happen to you. Um, <clears throat> other people then become influenced to try to bring you back into the fold because you're a feeder. 
Get it? So that's the first thing that happens. If that's not successful, if you can endure that level of spiritual warfare in order to free your mind, free your heart from the power of that influence of that entity, then you will be excommunicated. Because what's happening here is that the egregore doesn't want to lose other sources of supply. So if you're allowed to continue to interact or they continue to follow you on Facebook or they continue to interact with you, you are a threat then that you're, you're going to take supply. It's like, it's like you are coming after food supply for a species that depends on that particular source and supply. So they have to protect their food. So now all of a sudden the group becomes influenced to say, don't have anything to do with this person. Don't talk to this person. Put this person away from you. This person's dangerous. This person has demons. If you follow them too closely, you're going to get deceived, etc., and so on. So do you see it? So the Jesus in the Bible said, you know, if, if, a, if a sheep is lost, go out and get the lost sheep. Uh, the, the, the Jesus that Paul was following in Galatians says, if any of you is overtaken in a fault, you that are spiritual, restore such a one. And that means to men like broken born, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, realizing that you also can be tempted. So at least in various different places of the actual scriptures, Jesus is a good shepherd that leaves the 99 to go after the one. But that very seldom happens in these groups because people cut you off. They don't engage with you. They don't talk to you. They demonize you in their mind. They create a certain perception of who you are in their mind, and then they project that. They become angry because the energy of that egregore, just like a a bear that has to protect its food supply, and you're going in after its food supply, lion, you know, you're in – in the zoo and it's time for the lions to eat and you go in there and start trying to grab the food away from the lion, the lion's going to come after you. Why? Because it needs that to survive. Well, these egregores need that to survive. So that's why I said it's very, very uh, much spiritual warfare. And from my own experience, this is my own experience. So take it at face value. But from my own experience, in order to liberate myself, um, I had to renounce and break agreements with the various different egregores and go through an energetic cleansing. It was verbally renouncing and breaking and breaking those mindsets and staying away from worship services and staying away from, you know, various different things that had influenced me. In other words, the way you break free from the egregore is to reverse the process of what got you linked to that group egregore in the first place. And so for everybody, that's going to be different. I know the processes that I went through to connect with that. I knew the processes I need to do reverse the process, just reverse engineer it. Look at what you did and then reverse engineer it and you'll find uh, some freedom. And I, so I went through a tremendous, uh, such an energetic cleansing that for 24 hours I was physically purging and cleansing from the energy of that thing as well. So I hope this has given you some understanding. Um, I hope this has uh, been helpful for you on some level. Um, be interesting to go back and look at some of the comments. Please comment, uh, share your thoughts and ideas with me on this. If you're watching 
uh, by replay. I appreciate you watching. I've got stuff I got to do. Again, I won't be back on for a couple of weeks. Um, nothing's wrong. I'm going to continue to do these and looking forward to doing some other stuff in the future. Um, so with that, I'm going to bid you.